Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 57, with the title Creating Balance and Representation in Technology. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Nicole Hardiman. Nicole describes herself as a software and data engineer who is passionate about inclusion and diversity, and one of the co-founders of the Swindon Inclusion and Diversity Network. When I asked Nicole to describe her superpower, she said, people talk to me, and she's been told that she has a listening ear. Hello, Nicole. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yes, I think we planned this months ago, and it's finally got to that time. So thank you so much. Nicole. Creating balance and representation in technology. I know you're passionate about this, so tell me more about your passion. So I've been working in technology for a really long time. And if you want to know exactly how long that is, I was absolutely on call for the Millennium Bug, so quite a while. And in that time, I've I've been quite a, a lonely lady, shall we say. There's not been a lot of females in the tech teams that I've been in. So I can remember absolutely working in one place where it wasn't just that I was the only tech the only female in a tech team or the only female on that floor I was the only female in the building other than the receptionist and at the time it didn't occur to me to mind about that it didn't cross my mind to be concerned or worried but as time has gone on and the more I've spoken to other ladies the more I realized that sometimes women in technology feel extremely lonely they feel extremely isolated And they don't always have as much of a voice as they would like to have. They feel a little drowned out. So it's really important for me to make sure that that people who are underrepresented in technology have a voice because, you know, around half of our population is female. So our tech team should be representative of the population at large. Um, Otherwise, we do end up with some, well, there have been some quite well-documented faux pas. Let's go with that. Yes. And yeah, we can cover those in a minute if you like. So why? I mean, I hear this all the time. I, I work with a lot of recruiters, so my kind of sweet spot is, is advising recruiters. I hear so many times it's really, really hard to find great female talent. And really, is it? There is a very small pool of female talent, and I think that as a as an industry, the technology industry is actually starting to look in the wrong place for that female talent um there's a lot of i need some really brilliant software engineers i need them now i need them all to be very senior and they should be female because i've got an ind quota to hit a i really don't like that we've got an ind quota to hit that's terrible let's come back to that one in a bit but the pool of ladies that are out there who are that senior is really small there's some it's a statistic and i think it was the um women in technology website actually came up with there's less than 10 percent of women are full stack um, devs so your developers that are doing full stack development only 10% of those people are female 
um, let alone as identify as anything else. I think you know those those numbers are ridiculously small. So if we're all trying to fish from the same pond, and there's only ten percent of that pond is female, then we're not going to attract all of that talent unless we've got something really special going on, and we're really making sure that we're looking after the ladies that we've got. I think what we need to be doing is saying, do you know what? Text for everybody, and we need to dis- demystify it. We need to say that it's not just for people who can code in six languages and understand four databases and know how to export everything into the cloud and can then splice data here, there and everywhere. It's for anybody who wants to do anything and it's a really creative process and I don't think we talk about it in the right way to encourage more ladies to think about that as a career. Um, I, I often talk about my my niece, so um, complicated family didn't meet my niece until she was about seven um and she said to me what do you do and I said I work with computers and she said to me can girls do that and I said girls can do anything they want to do if you want to work with computers that's why she's the only girl in her scout troop right now so I am super proud of her that's amazing but if one conversation that says girls can do anything can encourage my niece to do that what could that do in a school what happens if we go into school and say do you know what this isn't really heavily nerdy stuff that's really frightening and we've turned it into something that you know, only a subset of the population can do. What if we go in and say, this is really creative. Look at the art that you can create with technology. Look at what you could what you could build. What if you wanted to do something, and I'm, I'm going to be horribly stereotypical and I know a lot of the schools are, but what if you wanted to do something with textiles, but then you added some automation to that or some robotics into it and turned it into something completely different. And I don't think we give that opportunity. We just say, right, this is for people who stare at screens and numbers and text all day. And these are things that you might want to do that's more creative. I mean, I have I have um, a Raspberry Pi and my Raspberry Pi goes in the craft cupboard next to my cross stitch. Because in my mind, those two things are both creative things. They, they belong together. But I think it's it's not a lot of people that think like that. So I think I, I, I've had, I think, three Raspberry Pis over the, over the, I don't, I haven't, I, I think I got the first one when it first came out. And then I got the next one that had a bit more graphics memory. And I, I, I would, I would spend hours downloading the image and, and tweaking it and working out what was going to be part of the build and, and booting it up and, and seeing what I could do with it. I, I don't think I ever programmed with it, but I, I used it more as a, uh, uh, to display some graphics and things like that. I was using some tools. I think I wanted a media server. That's what it was at the time. I was using a, uh, I can't even know, before Plex, whatever that, yeah, the, um, there's a media server you could download. And so I think I built that on it. There was a build for Pi because it, it had a very good graphics chip. And even though it was only a seller on processor, it was the graphics chip that could render 1080p and, and DVDs and things like that. So yeah, it's I remember that. Magical things in. with it. And yeah. one, of the, one of the guys I work with has put a Kubernetes cluster on it which I think is fantastic. It's a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> yeah, and I've seen people using them in basic forms to run uh, the white, uh, sort of the TV and reception areas of buildings, and you can you can connect to them and you can put a, put an image on it. And for, what, I think I paid about £37, if I remember rightly, for the first one. And for, for a bit of technology, okay, you, you didn't spend another £100 on the box, the keyboard, the, all the other interfaces, but it was still great value just to play with. Um, my my current favourite thing is the eight pounds ninety nine camera unit that I've got. I'm hoping to do some time lapse photography of my garden. Mm. Uh, we'll see. But like I said, creative. I think it's creative. Yeah, I I I, I love playing with it, and 
but then I, I've always been you know, probably like myself quite geeky for all of my life. And is, is that, is that part of the problem that we, we give it that label of geeky. Mm -hmm. We give it that label of nerdy, uh, Bill and Ted type thing. It's kind of got that. You, it, it doesn't have the, the, even the image of, of men who are into the subject isn't, they're not attractive men. It's, it's a stereotype, is it? They're kind of baggy t-shirt with skulls on it and, and long hair and kept in the dark. So even the, even the male stereotypes yeah. is not attractive, let alone how we get women to believe that that's a career path. I think there's a, a, a really interesting TV advert, and I can't remember which channel it's on, but there's a, a TV program that's being pushed at the moment called um, Beauty and the Geek, where I think certain ladies who might appear to be fairly shallow in the adverts, at least, uh, I don't want to make an assumption about them, um, and they've sort of paired them up with guys who have been in the tech market and are, are obviously a little bit um, well off. <laughs> and they've, they've decided this is a dating show. And I was like, you're, you're not helping me because you've created this persona of, you know, the Big Bang Theory type guys mm. who, who can't sort of hold a social conversation. And that's not true. That's not what technology is about at all. I mean, more and more as technology moves forward, we're doing things like Agile, which is um, a way of working which is really collaborative. And, you know, you have to be able to to be very social in those situations. It's not shut somebody mm. in a cupboard anymore and let them program for hours and hours and hours. It's now how do we do this together? And I think the more that's happening, as long as, as long as we can give people a voice and include people, then that's a really great place to be. And it actually opens a lot of doors, but it's it's not something that people look at in that way. So is the challenge the inclusion element of, of, or is it the creating aspirations for young women, young, young girls to see it as a career? If they were to get to the point where they were, they had an interest, would they be included? But how, how do we get the interest there? I think it's both. I, I really think there's a huge thing about demystifying tech. I'll, I, I will give you another family story. Um, my older sister is a seamstress and she runs in her, in her, where she does her sewing I don't know what you call that so group of people doing a load of sewing and upholstering and all the rest of it she has a work board so a big whiteboard that has post-its on it that has work to do work in progress work that's blocked and then it tells you who's doing the work and I said to her you're just running a kanban and she said what's that and I said it's basically a kanban board that's what you're doing it's one of the principles of agile you could go and be a scrum master or something and she went no no, no I can't do that that's techie I was like no you don't understand you're already doing it this, this is it. This is the job. And then she was like, no, no, can't do it. It's techie. And point blank refused to even look at it because that was a technology thing. Because I think we have created something so closed in, so ivory tower, that people can't bring themselves to look at it anymore because it's frightening. So how mm. do we make that less frightening? And it's something that it does start in the schools, you know, because we are schools that don't have a great STEM um, or, or don't have great numbers of ladies or girls moving into STEM also tend to have some really large numbers of ladies and no guys in things like home economics. So how are we taking those, you know, really early stereotypes and breaking them and saying, this isn't scary. This is okay. This is something we can, you know, work on together. And the things that, I as a woman bring to that or somebody else as a guy or however somebody else identifies brings to that 
it's all going to be something different and all of our experiences are really valid and we'll all approach problems in a different way so bringing the, the wealth of diversity of thought or even let alone diversity of you know whatever we want to call ourselves is really 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 important so it, it's how we how we break that and I think it's it's really hard. I recently was um, working on a white paper with the Tech Talent Charter. It's in a hackathon to create a white paper, which is a good job. Um, if anybody wants to have a go at that, they quite often have them on their, on their website. Um, when we talked through that, we were saying you actually have to go after people to talk to them about reskilling and technology. And you can't do it passively. They can't come to you because it's too frightening. So how do you go to them and say, are you really good at problem solving? Are you really good at understanding this flow of work? Are you really good at, you know, even are you great at spreadsheets? Because often it's not a big leap then to go out a little bit more and actually think about a tech job. Mm. Some of these people are already doing it, but they're so scared of admitting that that's technology because that's frightening. I mean, I used to, previous role, I used to work for the National Trust, and we used to talk about tech-phobic people because the National Trust has a lot of volunteers we'd quite often say that some of the folks there were tech phobic, so you'd need to approach the problems with them in a different way. And I, I'm scared that we are creating generations of people who are still tech phobic. Yeah, because we try and, as you say, we, we mystify and, and layer it in, in acronyms and cliquey kind of words. And, and we paint the picture. If you look on films and things, the the person that's trying to defuse the bomb is kind of geeky, and the, or the person mm. trying to hack the world or break into the mainframe is portrayed as it being really complex. And, and you know, if you're in if you're in tech world, you know that everything they show on the screen is completely made up. And <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't do it though. You can't just push a button to connect the entire it's system back <laughs> into stuff. But you know, I, I'm just thinking back as you're talking there. You know, we we go back to. Ada Lovelace, you know, uh, mm. who was arguably, well, is, is was the, the first computer programmer. Uh, very instrumental. Even a programming language was named after Ada. And yes. I, I, when I was in my early career, I, I learned Ada, uh, uh, which is very similar to Pascal, if you've ever done Pascal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was completely alien to me at the time. It was because we were doing embedded um, uh systems into chips and, and blowing EPROMs at the time and Ada was used as a cross compiler to generate the machine code and then to put into these these flight systems. And then I also was thinking about the uh the movie that came out four or five years ago called Hidden Figures about the the black women I who took part in the, in the American space program, didn't they? And uh in those days it was typing. Typing was a woman's job. So the original data processors, the original computer operators were all women. And therefore, and a lot of the mathematical calculations were performed by women. Uh, and we can see classic examples. If you go back even further here, we look at Bletchley, we look at what happened to the code breakers during the war, how uh, the government attracted people by using cryptography type adverts in the evening news or the, the papers around crosswords and puzzles to get these people in. And of course, the men were off fighting and on the front. Women were the people who were left to hold the fort, and they were allowed to shine, and they were allowed to be intelligent and be clever and show their skills. So somehow along the line, this woman's work, women's job, uh, got usurped by men. I don't know, maybe in the mid eighties, maybe because I've got friends that I went to school with 
One was a, a Kix developer, IBM Hursley, who became a master inventor and had numerous patents registered under her name. And she's now a, a visiting professor at Sheffield University. Wow. And she is right in the middle of, of, of this uh, it's software data programming. Um, and very influential, certainly in IBM and some of the some of the work she's been doing. She collaborates on open source now and uh, does a lot of projects uh, across the world. So, when did it become not a, a female subject? When, when was that in the eighties or was it before? I think it's fascinating. I think in the eighties, I think we we definitely didn't have. Well, we we didn't. I was going to try and sort of sugarcoat it then, but I'm not going to. We did not have an inclusive culture in the 80s. Let's just be flat. Um, and, and I think it was really difficult then. I mean, if, even in the 90s when I started, it wasn't really seen as a thing. I, you know, I have been in the meetings where somebody has suggested I take the notes because I'm the female, or can I get them a coffee, please? No, I'm not going to put up with that. But that's my personality type and I will tell somebody to go and get lost maybe not in those words um but I, I was I was talking to somebody recently who who'd had something very clumsy said to them something well-meaning but very clumsy and it, it's just even, even the language becomes very uninclusive let's go with that um but from, from where it came from, I think it, it must have been around the 70s or the 80s where everything was extremely powerful. It was extremely heavy going. There was, you know, very Wolf of Wall Street kind of stuff. And everybody was dressing in power suits with shoulder pads and ridiculous Oh, the things. shirts with the white collar and the sort of striped shirts, or the banker <laughs> shirt. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. And I think it just became a really toxic place to be because everybody was competing. And it's not a comfortable place. And if if that's somewhere you're you're really not comfortable being, then I think that's it's something we sort of took a step back from. Mm. But no, I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but it, it definitely did. I would listening to ladies now talk to me about why they might want to leave technology. It's often about competition and one-upmanship and trying people trying to you know put people down to get ahead and i think the 80s was very much that is there still a situation for younger women and probably in their teens and 20s where they they can't necessarily invest the same sort of time a man can because the family commitments because the home expectations if they want to have a relationship and a family they tend to be the default when it comes to the home admin Mm -hmm. so when you're trying i mean i remember when I was developing my IT career, that I, I I'd lock myself away for hours, and suddenly realised it's three o'clock in the morning. I'd be in work until I got kicked out at, by the security people at midnight, or whatever. And I, I think that sometimes it, it sort of sucks you in the technology because it's, it, it's always there. You can always do more. Um, it, it, do you think that that plays a factor? Is it availability of time? I think it definitely does. I think there's there's something really key there actually because I think. And we've seen it through the pandemic where our engineers, and I'm not going to say all of them because I think that there's a, we are becoming a more progressive society. And I think there's a lot of people who are doing their, their fair share of the childcare and all the rest of it. Um, I've certainly had one-to-ones with engineers that I look after 
uh, one of the guys we had a one-to-one with his five-year-old sat on his lap and that was fine I you know we managed I talked to this young lad about his rock quite a lot before I managed to speak to his dad about his programming but you know that that was all right but for the most part it's been the ladies that have had to bear the brunt of that childcare and homeschooling mm. and all of the rest of it and I have conversations with them so I look after other engineers now at this point in my career that's what I do um, and I spoke to a lady who also does that and she said well I wanted to move more into management because I just couldn't keep up with the tech anymore and I said well what do you mean she said I don't have time in my life to be able to do all of the things that the guys can and and she said that straight to me so I was like why well, I haven't really thought about it that way before because if you look at where there are larger numbers of ladies in technology at the moment. It's those very junior levels where we put some work into the grassroots and put some work into school and people are starting to come through the system now. Mm. But as soon as you get to like a mid-level developer, they become invisible. They go away. They disappear. And, you know, I, I hear people talking about things like, you know, they went on maternity and they didn't want to come back into a technical job because technology moves so fast they haven't been able to keep up and now they were a year behind because they've taken time out to have a family which you know as employers we need to look at to make sure that that's something that we can help people with because you know Mm. with the right buddy system with the right access to training with the right you know availability of having some actual time in your day job to say right we know you've had a year off these are the things that we've moved forward with this is some training you can do. We're going to give you time to get back up to speed because they're brilliant people and they really understand the foundations of it. I mean, you know, having a baby doesn't make you not a technologist, <laughs> which is, you know, and, and people are leaving the industry because they really feel they can't keep up, which is terrible. So we end up with fewer and fewer senior technical ladies, which is it's really difficult because those senior decisions are then made completely by guys and we end up with things like um i think the iphone thing was fairly well documented where you know the design teams had basically created a, a phone that was the right size for a man's hand but a lady tends to they finding women drop them more often so um yeah things like that or i've, I've seen things where um color schemes have been put in and they're saying you know this pink stuff is for women and I think, gosh, if you'd have had one woman on your tech team, somebody would have said, oi, that's a great idea. Um, so, you know, and we're missing that. We're missing the way that, you know, we navigate things differently. I, I've, I've read a study recently saying that we navigate websites in different ways. So if that's the case, then the navigation is only being put in by guys because they're the only senior engineers that are around. So how do we change that up and make sure that everybody's represented and that we can, you know, work in a way that works for everyone and not just, you know, copying the same demographic as the tech teams because they tend to be mm. middle class, middle aged white guys. And that that is definitely, I mean, you're pointing out there the, the, the UX, the uh, the user interface. You're right that there seems to be a very structured, standard approach to things, and and that. It's not only a male female thing. There's a neurodiversity thing. There's a mm-hmm. uh, a dyslexia thing. There's a, a, a colorblind thing. There's accessibility, dexterity, hands. So if, if it's thinking in a very monologue sort of way, we're not we're not seeing the needs of others. Not 
so by at least recognizing that you need different voices, different views, different opinions, you're going to get a, a better product that's more relevant to the to the end user, the person trying to engage with it, aren't you? And I think the way of thinking, I mean, um, we had a, an engineer recently, um, not female, a guy, but he'd come from a different um, a different background. So most of my engineers will come up through computer science. They'll do a very standard degree. They'll go through a very standard you know, route into where they're going. Um, and the engineer that I'm talking about, he'd come up and he was a brick player. And he'd gone from being a brickie to being a techie. And he's brilliant, really, really, really good. But he approaches every single problem in a completely different way to all of my techies. Because he just didn't come up that route. So he's not constrained by some of the things that the others would be. He's not a, but we've always done it like that because he's never seen it like that. So he's just going to do it the way that makes sense to him, which was brilliant. And I really loved that approach. You know, having people from different backgrounds, from different, like say, different neurodiversity status. um, And if you come in with a different life experience and you bring something different to that team, that enables you to work as a team differently. And, and for me, my experience, it becomes richer. And you've got more, because of the visibility that you have, you've, you've got more likelihood of making something that's a brilliant product. So organizations mm. are missing out. But again, the people that they're looking to grab are such a small pool that they need to start really early in schools to start encouraging people and demystifying this technology to say, do you know what, you can come and do this because what you bring to the table is super valuable. And I don't know we do that. Do you think schools are are starting to focus on this? I mean, I, I don't think in 2022 with all the, what I know about schools and their new initiatives around the, the kind of de-gendering the experience, just, do you see that schools are, 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 are influencing younger generations of, of, of STEM and tech people? I think they're trying to, but I think I read something really recently about um, Jordan, the country, um, having uh, better laws around um, homosexuality than the UK did 20 years before we we legalised and and made everything more sensible. Um, But in reality, as a gay person in Jordan, then there was more of a likelihood of you being harassed by the police because despite what the law said, the cultural and the societal norms still didn't agree. And I think we're a little bit, I mean, that's a really extreme example, but I think that's a little bit where we are with school. There is a, you will, you know, not genderize subjects and therefore you'll allow all the students to go and do whatever it is that they want to do. But we're still in a society that's going to say, you know what, little girl, you shouldn't be playing with that action man, you should have this dolly. And it, it's something that's really built into us and it's going to take a long time to, mm. to come back from there. I often, we talk about having antenatal classes and I I would like to see pre-parenting classes where parents are actually kind of encouraged to think in a, in a gender neutral way about the aspirations mm. they're setting for their children. And I, I'm not talking about trans, non-binary, LGBTQ plus stuff here. I'm just trying to say, let's try and create this aspirational level playing field or or boost aspirations of young girls to have more belief that they can be who they want to be and what that might mean. Because I, I, I think we are still spoon-feeding our children the blue and pink, mm. uh, the, the girl and boy stuff. 
gender yeah. reveal parties, the toys, everything oh, we're doing, gosh. everything yeah. we're doing is is is, prop, is promoting and propagating the the gender stereotyping. And we we know that by the time you get to seven, eight, nine, ten, those stereotypes are almost locked in to the child's vision of of their future, and it takes a very forward looking set of parenting to really fight against the world. We've only recently seen in the last three or four years, Disney, Pixar producing content that is creating aspiration for, for young, for young girls and young women. We're still seeing stereotyping women in movies behaving like men, but with tight pants on for the benefit of the men. Uh, so it's still sexualizing. And, I, and someone told me once that, uh, I never sit, thought this before, but the film Bugsy Malone, I think you remember Bugsy Malone with the splurge guns. It was like a kids playing gangsters. And they really rejected that film because what it was doing is it was sexualizing young teenage girls to be hanging off the shoulder of a, of a young man sort of thing. And I, and I thought, wow, that's uh, so insightful. So we're, we're coding these messages into the young people's heads from very early age. This is your role. This is your role. And uh, that's kind of we've got to take responsibility for sort of kind of bringing that out of the system, haven't we? Yeah, and, and it's really difficult. I mean, I love what you're saying about the Disney stuff. I mean, I know nobody can see behind me at the moment, but behind my head there are three Disney princesses, and they're the modern ones. So they are about you know breaking tradition and moving forward with your own thoughts mm. and, and working hard and, and you know achieving things rather than waiting for somebody to come and save you. And I think. Yeah, the narrative is definitely changing. I think it, it's really important to make sure that we're doing that with our young people. But, you know, it, it's so ingrained because, you know, grandma's still going to buy dollies for the little one. When I was a kid, my mum, until I was about seven, my mum refused to buy me trousers. Um, so at which point I didn't care. I used to go and climb trees in my skirt and get in terrible trouble. But, um, there's a, a real sort of difference between me and my sister so I was once I was in my trousers I was allowed to have a computer because that's what I wanted to do I wanted to play games my sister was brought up with lots of dollies and she had a pram my sister's got a large amount of children which means I don't have to have any um <laughs> which you know that works for us that's what makes her happy this is what makes me happy but um it, it's it's a real difference and you know even my own upbringing I, I can see that sort of change because I I can't even imagine doing what she does I mean that takes a, a level of strength and emotional fortitude that I probably don't have but she's great at that and she thinks what I do is some kind of black magic so I, I think it, it's something we need to just again there, there are those weird barriers aren't there we need to break it down yeah there's so many women in in their 20s 30s and even early 40s who I almost feel apologetic for not wanting to have children for, for whatever reason that may be. Uh, and it seems almost like you're failing as a woman to not do your part. And I, I've met many women who've, who constantly have that microaggression of having to explain themselves all the time. I don't want yeah. them. It's not that I'm gay. It's not that I haven't found somebody. I just don't want children if that's okay with you. And yeah, it's, it, it creates a real strange reaction with people. Actually, I was um, I went on a work conference and I ended up uh, flying home on the same plane with a with a customer, and we had we we talked about um, techie stuff. We talked about um, geospatial design software that avoid clashing in factories. Very boring. Um, 
And on the way home on the plane, because it was it was in Vegas, which sounds really, really lovely, but it was really not because it was very customer focused. And I didn't think I did anything fun. But um, we were flying home and he was talking to me and, and we were talking about things. And I was like, oh, I don't want kids. And he just almost blanked me at that point. How could you be so selfish? What a terrible thing to do. That's really awful. I said, no, no, no. Selfish would be having them when I didn't want them. I'm not having kids. I'm not being selfish. I'm just who's going to look after you when you're older I was like well I'll cross that bridge when I come to it I don't know but he was absolutely horrified that I would not want kids and I've never mm. had that kind of reaction from someone before but that's that, that, that's repeated time and time again there's this expectation isn't there yeah mm. why aren't you engaged when's the wedding when are you gonna yes uh, and it, it plays out time and time again it really does. I mean, when we got married, that was one of the first things when you're having the babies. Yeah. What if we don't? I, w- I will admit to uh, our daughter got married last year, and we- my wife and I were quite excited about the fact that they're planning a family that is on their radar. But we didn't say we what you must, you must, you must. We were we were very conscious about the fact we didn't want to put any pressure on. We understood the the risks that people go through and the emotional stress of it being difficult, whatever it may be. So mm. we were very conscious about the fact that we didn't want to sort of see that idea. But we, we, and we said, is it okay to talk about the fact that you're thinking about having a family openly? And they went, yeah, yeah, please, we want to talk about it. So so we, we certainly didn't want to put pressure on. And I've worked in environments where there was a sweepstake uh, on a woman who just got married about how soon she was going to leave to have a baby. Gosh, and no. people had a sweepstake on it. And people were quoting from anything between you know three months to a year before she became pregnant. And it was, I remember it being very open, but not, not obviously publicly open, but mm. men would generally talk about it. It wasn't. Uh, so if, that, if I'm aware of that, it must happen more often than, than not. Uh, I th- I think also about I mean I, I gender transitioned what, five six years ago now I forget when, and I've noticed myself that I've I dumb myself down, not to appear too clever in certain situations. So I'm a, I'm a professional speaker. I, I travel the world with laptops and cables and AV kit, and I I'm pretty te- I ran an IT company for thirty years. I'm pretty technically competent in terms of self sufficient. But I find I turn up some venues. It's just easier for me to go, oh, could someone help me plug this in? Because I'm not sure what I'm doing sort of thing. Because there's people there to deal with all that. And I, I don't know why. Am I playing the stereotype? Am I am I, am I, just taking advantage of the help that's there? I don't know. But sometimes if I, I feel like just saying, like, come on, let me deal with it. You're, you're making a hash of it. I could do this better than you can. But I just go, oh, come on, you, you do it then. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've done that myself. I have done. I remember, um, I think we've got new monitors in work some time ago. Might not even have been this work. I can't even remember where it was. And um, the new monitor came with a USB-C connection. And I was thinking, well, that, what have I got here? Where's my HDMI cable? I need to plug all of this in. And, and I hadn't really thought about it. And I obviously hadn't had enough coffee that day. And somebody said to me, well, give it here, let me do it. And I said, fine, I shall be a princess then and just stand over here and made a big deal out of it and made him feel really awkward, which probably wasn't the best way to deal with it. But also, just just take it, make it go away, make it sort it out. <laughs> which is, you know, I probably am more techie than he was. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that's very maybe, maybe it's just a realization that I'm there to do this job, not mm. to do that job. And maybe maybe it was just a realization that you're that you're paid to worry about the technical stuff. I'm I'm paid to speak and inspire. So maybe I should uh, just do what I do best and let you do what you do best. So I don't absorb the stress of the whole thing. Maybe maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was a really interesting thing. I listened to a, I think it was a Radio Four podcast. I can't remember. Um, but there was um, uh, Candela is the guy's surname. I can't remember his his first name. But he does a lot of it uh, on inclusion and diversity. And um, he was talking about uh, organisations that get their gender balance right at a senior management level. So if you do end up with 50-50 or 48-48 and four or whatever that happens so to be. binary people as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, he talked about if you create this programme where you eventually get to, I, I, for shorthand, I'm going to say 50-50, but you know what I mean. If you get to 50-50, then... Um, if you leave that a certain amount of time, it goes back to being predominantly male because the bias doesn't just exist inside the men, it exists inside some women as well. You know, we've been brought yeah. up that way. Um, and it it's not a self-perpetuating thing if you get to 50-50. It doesn't carry on in perpetuity because you've got women on the board or whatever. They don't automatically hire more women. So I, I find that really fascinating because I definitely see that, you know, it's not just board level, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's how we start lifting each other up to make sure that we do get those, you know, opportunities and we don't sort of take a step back and go, oh, no, no, you do it. And we're all guilty of it. Yeah, I was, I was on a plane flying back from somewhere. I can't remember where or when, but I was with uh, two other female kind of colleagues who were going to this conference. And when the pilot did the pilot announcement, the pilot was female. And the, the two women I sit next to looked at each other and went, uh, and they're almost like freaking themselves out, but going, we just heard a female pilot and we're more worried than we would have been if it was a male pilot. So we started analysing this, what what was going on in our heads about we, we were IND professionals, if you like, mm-hmm. questioning the fact that a female pilot came on and we weren't thrilled. We were kind of more nervous. So you're right. So we have our own group bias. We have we, we look mm-hmm. at other women and say, you see, women. You tend to view men as, as being more authoritative. You know, the deep voice, the way men, men speak, their height advantages, their physical prowess, seen as more competent and reliable. So, yeah, uh, women who speak softer with upticks or with modulating voices seem less confident. Therefore, you're less trustworthy. Therefore, you're not going to have faith in them. And uh, and those are the, the those built-in biases that we, really are almost impossible to shake, isn't it? There's there's two things there. I think there's I've I've been on a lot of um, unconscious bias workshops recently. It's obviously all organisations are trying to um, make their IND better. They're looking for inclusion to be a real focus for them. Um, where I work is is no exception. But what I tend to see is we get on these workshops and it very quickly becomes a man bashing session. And it shouldn't, because bias exists in everyone, and we need to acknowledge that. And if we don't acknowledge that, we're just perpetuating the problem. So I think that's one thing. But you're, you're right about um, people who speak with authority and people who are a little bit softer. And from a technology perspective, I see that in a Scrum situation. So when you do um, software development in Scrum, you have um, two week sprints. You have a planning session up front where everybody's supposed to have input. And at the end, you have a retrospective where you talk about what went wrong and what went well and how you could do things better next time. 
And in that planning situation, if you're a quiet person, you don't get a word in because some of those folks are quite big and bullshit and they're very loud and they're very confident. And if you're, and, and it's not just a female thing, if you're just generally a quiet or shy person, mm. then it's really hard to be heard or be seen. And I think the same happens with retros. You can say, oh, I, this, I don't think this worked very well or we didn't work very well together. And I think there was you know, something behind that and I'd like to explore it and work through it the next time. If the other person is then big and loud and overbearing, then that can really be quickly be, well, that's you. You're very quiet. You, you know, you took it to heart and you shouldn't have. We should just carry on. Mm-hmm. And then for you never get heard. I think that's, it's so important to make sure that those voices are heard. And, you know, if you've got a really good scrum master, he was, he was the person who officiates all these things, if anybody doesn't know, um, then that's great because they can say, no, that that's a really valid thing and we need to listen and we need to work through that. But usually, you know, if, we, if we're going to talk about bias and those scrum masters tend to be, I, I see more women in that role than I see guys at the moment. So if somebody's really overbearing and talks over the top of them, how much sort of interjection do we actually get? So it becomes really difficult. I don't know what the answer is. I wish I did. No, so they're seen as less effective, maybe not selective for the bigger projects because mm. people see them as they're okay for the little stuff. We've got representation, but they really haven't got the gravitas, if you like, to, uh, yeah. to take on the bigger projects. Yeah. Even though they're probably more thoughtful, more empathetic, more collaborative, more inclusive themselves, they're just not seen as having the, that authority. Yeah. And then sometimes that person could have their own bias, in which case they will take a step back and let them. The yeah. land people speak up. But we do, we do see that. Yeah, I think we were talking about just now about how our own group bias. We're not, we're not pushing ourselves forward. And, you know, the crabs in the bucket, the queen bee, the super chicken, all these kind of. We tend to peck at people and, and push them down mm. for stealing our space or making damaging our brand because I'm, I'm good and actually I, I don't want to give you space to become good as well. I think Queen Bee is, is a real phenomenon in technology. I think, you know, there have been so few ladies in that tech space that it's it's very easy to almost create yourself a special status because, you know, you if you're female and loud enough, and, and the word I'm going to use is gobby. I'm not going to be frightened of it. Let's be, <laughs> I have been there and I have done it. Um, if you're that person and you've got that bigger voice, then it's really easy to say, you know, this is me, I'm representing, I'm doing a thing. But as soon as somebody else comes in, if they're not as loud or if they're not as big, you know, it's it's really easy to sort of say, oh, they're not doing what I'm doing. You know, they're not helping us. How do we move it forward from there? And I think it's real hard. I think, you know, you sometimes see it when you do um, interviews and recruitment. And I think some people are, almost expect it if you're a female um, interviewer I think they sort of come in and they always get a little bit more quiet if they see a female interviewer in a tech space which is we've tried really hard in my current organization to make sure that um, our interview panels are diverse so there there are people with different at least trains of thought diverse trains of thought on an interview panel but I've been to, to interviews where there's been a lady and they are very very almost over the top getting close to aggressive because they're trying to almost like trying to prove a point and you'll get through a little bit and then 
it almost tones down and you can have a normal human conversation. But it seems to start, not everybody, of course, not everybody, but I've been in situations where they seem to start very loud, very aggressive and almost like, this is my authority, this is my space and I'm going to, you know, I I feel like I have to do something to own it. Mm. But um, I I think you can get past that bit, but it's it's whether people have the energy or the inclination to get past that and find the human being underneath. Yeah, I was in a run some training, facilitated training last week, and uh, one of the it was a mainly female cohort on this train that I was running. Um, one of the one of the women in, in this cohort was very senior in the organisation, and she presented this very tough, hard exterior, and almost like scary. Mm. I didn't, and I. Over the course of the facilitation workshop, she opened up about a lot of her, her previous history and her background, and she became very human and very vulnerable at that point. Mm. But there, there definitely seemed to be something that, because of her role, she needed to be aloof, scary, and, and almost dominating. And I guess that's learned behaviour by fighting yeah. in a man's world. I think, and, and I'm, I'm going to generalise, so you will have to forgive me, but I think if you look in tech companies, there are certain ladies who've got to a, a certain level of um, seniority and they are basically emulating men. They are, they're being a guy and they're not being themselves. And I don't think that helps uh, support the wider female tech population because I just think that, you know, it, it sort of shouts that the way to get ahead is, is to be one of the guys. And I don't think you need to do that. I think, I mean, if, if, if I look around my current organisation, it's something that, it's taken me a little while to be okay with, but there seems to be a senior leader cookie cutter. So if you're female, they seem to all have the same haircut. They seem to all wear the same dress. They all wear the same shoes and they all have the same speech pattern. And I'm not like them. And it took me a really long time to think, oh my gosh, I'm not like these other ladies. How am I ever going to progress? It's going to be terrible. It's going to be really awful. And all of a sudden I realized I'm not like them. How amazing is that? Yes. But it took me a long time to figure that out. It took me ages. And, you know, I'm I'm in my 40s. And to, to wait that long, I don't want other women to have to wait that long. I want them to see mm. that whatever they bring to the table is the best thing that they can bring. And they don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to pretend to be mm. black to do that. It's, it's really interesting you say that because when I was going through my gender transition, I was tra- chasing this aspiration of womanhood, what I thought as you say, the cookie cutter, the the shoes, the dress, the whatever. And I, I was chasing these ideals about how one should behave and to be accepted. And what I realised was as I was running this way, the smart money was running the opposite way, saying, actually, I want to be myself. I don't want to conform. I don't need to be defined by by how I look, how I sound, how I dress. And that, that I, I put the brakes on and thought, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm chasing – an idea, an ideal of being somebody else. I want I gender transition to be myself, not be somebody else. And that was the realization I had. Suddenly, I think, hang on a minute, I don't want to transition to be somebody else. I want to transition to be me. So I parked myself and what? Who am I? How do I want to look? How do I want to dress? And that's that was empowering. But not everybody is able to just whack the stop button on the escalator. They they just keep going to the destination, don't they? Yeah, I, I think you see it a lot, and I think you know there is a a societal need to conform i mean it's um well it's, it's all around social identity theory if you if you want to mm. dig into some of that stuff but it's it's fascinating to me and 
it's very social identity theory is is one of those things it's really important that you know society has that because it stop, makes us all drive the same way on the road it means you don't stand up in a theater and turn around the other way and start talking to random people because society doesn't agree with that sort of thing but it also causes us problems if you go back to the, the blue and pink toys that's what society says we do girls get mm. pink ones boys get blue ones and that's where we're moving forward from it's 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 fascinating to see how that then affects us you know, not just in the workplace but you know in the you know do you become one of these cookie cutter people who have followed the thing and they've done fashion and trends and stuff i would rather be me and be comfortable mm. but i also recognize that that's not going to work for everybody that i look after and support so i need to make sure that if that's how they'd like to be, then I support them the best that they can. But I would love for them to understand who they are underneath rather than trying to go for this ideal, which I don't think works anyway. Mm, I, I agree. What you said earlier about um, some of these IND EDI sessions tend to end up being a, a white male bashing session. And mm. we hear some very derogatory terms. Uh, I, I get really, really passionate in the same way I think you are, that we can't be inclusive by demonising another group. And if we're not careful, we end, we end up doing is saying, you're the problem. Actually, I, I see people who hold the power and the privilege as being the solution. Not They may they may hold the keys to the problem, but they're actually they hold the keys to the solution as well. Because you know, I, I look back you know, 100-odd years ago, women were allowed to vote by men. So we, we hate that. I hate that phrase. Women were allowed to vote by men, but men had the power. Men had the parliament. Men had the MPs. Men had to vote to allow women to vote. And it's like it sounds so crass now, but in order to make real change, we need the people who have the keys, who have the power, who have the keys in the castle to put the drawbridge down and start those discussions. In the same way that white people have a responsibility to work on racism, anti-racism able-bodied people have, have have the responsibility to create systems and processes for disabled people, et cetera, et cetera. So the people hold the power and the privilege must take responsibility. And I think we need men in the conversation. And the number of times I go to IND events, webinars, panels, and 99% of the people attending are women. Yeah. We, we, we end up in our own echo chamber. We're trying to solve the women in STEM problems, trying to solve the women's representation, trying to fix sexism. What we what we never do is we never have the people who can check, make the change in the room with us. And I remember I was I was uh, not to, not to location drop here. I was in San Francisco. Uh, I was I was uh, on a panel at a conference there, and the panel was out around gender equality in the workplace. And I remember looking out into the audience, six or seven hundred people in rows and rows of chairs. And I just sort of looked around and said to the audience, "Can we just have a look around us? How many men are in the room?" And it was like five or six men out of 600 women where are all the men the men are learning about software and and sales and other things in the other room how do we make change this is back to you nicole how do we make change unless we get people listening who can make the change it's so so difficult so i uh, my current organization have started the women in tech group so that we can have a, a place where people don't feel so lonely that you know there are other people going through the same thing that you are and um i'm asked quite frequently where's the men in tech group i was like you are more than welcome to come and join the women in tech group the women in tech group is not for women and it's not for techies so it's for people who want to support women through their technology journey whether that's whether they're just curious or whether they are 
super into the code and they're can you know they can't sleep in binary or whatever they do when they're going to sleep um and I, i've been really clear that i think inclusion means everyone you can't take somebody out of that equation and as I mean we in technology women are a minority group if you, you can't take a minority group and then solve that problem when the majority of people are not going to be involved in solving it and it's it's a really really difficult thing to do um yeah I, I have heard of a lot of people who are um, on the public speaking circuit who will not do the women only conferences anymore because exactly like you say, we become an echo chamber. We talk about the problems, we talk about how things can't be solved without the support of the people who are not in the room. Mm. And we, we've got to do this together. I mean, um, when I talk about inclusion and diversity, I always put the I first because let's include all of us and then hopefully we become more diverse. We're not diverse and then we'll include people. It doesn't work that way around. Um, and it's allowing everybody to have a voice and standing up. The allyship piece is really key. When you see the problem, somebody needs to shout about it. And that doesn't need to be somebody of the same diverse characteristics. It needs to be everybody in the room going, hey, that wasn't right. Don't do that. And it's it's a really, really tricky thing to create the psychological safety for somebody to call that out. It's, it does start with everyone. It doesn't just start with these are the people feeling the pain. It needs to start with mm. everyone. And psychological safety, one of the fundamentals of there is is, is being, a, being allowed or feeling empowered to speak up, to give your view, and most importantly, to be listened to and respected for your view or perspective. You don't have to be agreed yeah. with or you know, not saying you're always right, but allowing to, to, to be able to express that so people can hear you. And it's, mm. that that's... I, I, I see a lot of people who, who don't want to speak up for fear of victimization, for fear of retribution, for fear of being seen as, as not good enough for, for saying something or, Oh, come on. Everyone knows what we're talking about here. Why do you need to say something? Yeah, it, it's really difficult. And I think you get the opposite then. So I have uh, recently in the past couple of weeks started a new job and I've had at least one person go, Oh, well they needed to hire a woman into that space. So you've probably got it because of that. No, let me tell you how awesome I am. That's why I've got this job. But it's the mindset that comes with it that goes with that then. We create a whole other set of problems, which is, is again, really difficult yeah. because I've now in the position where I need to prove how great I am at this job because everyone assumes I've only got it because I'm female. That's a real dilemma. And, I, and I've, I've, I've had conversations with other people about who've walked away from positions because they felt they got it because they're a woman. Mm. Um, and I, I suppose what I said to them was, why not take it and celebrate it? Because a man will get it because he's a man. So why not, why not a woman take it because she's a woman? It's, it seems fair to me. And as a, as a, as a trans woman, I, I know I've been tokenized in various, I've been included because I'm trans. But I also think of all the times I've been excluded because of who mm. I am. So why not cash in my my chips where where they're available and and be unapologetic? Go, I'm here. This is now my space. I can occupy this. I can have my voice. I can be who I am and and, and speak. Oh, I can. Or I can walk away and go. Oh no, you're tokenizing me. I don't want to be on there. And then always grumble in the background. So now I'm 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 going to take my opportunity 
and make sure that I, I use it. Uh, and I would encourage other people to say, okay, I'm a token. I'm a token. Fine. Great. Yay. Let me show but you what better I can to do be from me here. than somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I know it's not easy. It's not easy being the one, the only, as you said right at the beginning, that you were, you were brought up in a world where you were the, not the only woman in the building um, who wasn't the cleaner sort of thing. And yeah. that's the, sometimes you have to, you, we have to have a foothold. We have to say, I've got the personal character and strength to do this. So I'm going to do this. Or we have to wait for somebody else. And that person maybe 10 years later. I remember having a conversation with somebody and they were like, what, what do you think about um, IND? And I said, well, what I think is I really don't want to be the first person to do anything. But if somebody needs to be the first to break that barrier, it's not going to be me. I don't want it to be me because I don't want that situation to have existed before then. But if it has to be broken, let's break it. Excellent. I love that. I love that. I love that. So you, you've got your, your dream of the future is uh, equality, equity, representation. Gender I remember the World, with the World Economic Forum published a report uh, around gender equity or gender equality and they they were quoting 2074 for the western world 2074 that's i don't know how many what's that 52 50 52 years time can we wait 52 years and then i thought well there's half it 2046 that's still 26 years time is that hang on it's half it again 13 years is that still too long it is isn't it so how Every time, every time you look at those numbers, and that, that is for the Western world, if you include uh, Middle East, Far East, and other countries that are less progressive with, with gender equality, we're up to 150, 200 years plus before we, we create this change. And what's going on in you know, Russia and Ukraine right now, we just see that's a, a very male-led thing that's going on this is this, this not there's not enough female representation there at all otherwise no doubt we wouldn't have got to where we are today in, in this so i don't know females pro- can be just as horrible as men oh yes I, I know i know but it's a very it's a very patriarchal <laughs> yes. uh chest beating situation that's going on but by by a few people and i'm not trying to be to, to say it's all it's all a man, a man problem but how, how do we get tangible progress in the next 10 years that we haven't achieved in the last 70 or 80 or 100 or 200 years? I think we need organisations and not just commercial organisations, but educational organisations to be braver and say, right, if we start opening people's eyes earlier, yeah, we might not be able to measure that by return on investment. We might not be able to say that this programme encouraged X amount more people into STEM subjects. But I think we've got to start speculatively doing that and making it more open to everyone at an age where you know people can make those kinds of life choices or we start going to places like um so my organization has contact centers where you know people phone up and they put all your details into the various system we go and talk to those people proactively and say john this isn't scary you are already doing 90 percent of it because you're using these systems this is how we bring these people through and, you know, really embrace that diversity of thought, not just the diversity characteristics that they come with. Mm. So I, I think those things are going to be absolutely key in the coming years to really open up the technology sector in particular. But it's it's really difficult because whoever puts the money in might not be the person who benefits. 
So if we went into schools and did a huge program around helping kids learn more STEM. Um, my engineers at the moment are helping a, um, a consulting organisation that we work with, work with their Raspberry Pi um, challenge. So they send Raspberry Pis out to schools and get the kids to do uh, inventing things, which is brilliant. They've come up with some really fascinating stuff, stuff that the industry's not fixed. So helping people do that but you've got to recognize that right those kids might not grow up and then want to join that company they might join somewhere else they might do something mm -hmm. completely randomly different but still in a stem field so you've got to put the investment in knowing that you might not get the return on it and i think, I think that's difficult yeah. for organizations to swallow i think I've, I've seen other i've seen organizations start to look at this academy type approach mm. where you're not necessarily looking to recruit or nurture into the subject through the school, through the university. What you're maybe doing is picking up people in their late teens, early 20s who've become lost or maybe returning parents or people mid-career pivots and saying, look, these opportunities exist. We, we've got a global talent shortage. We, we're fighting. We've got the great resignation. We've got it's – it's a candidate market at the moment. I think the only realistic way is for, for employers to breed and train their own futures – and I think the other thing you're right about is you've got to do it selflessly. You've got to recognize that you're not training necessarily just for you. You're training for society to improve the opportunity. So for that social conscience, so that by having more underrepresented people from marginalized communities, women, whoever we want to talk about here, we're getting, we're reducing joblessness. We're reducing homelessness. We're reducing mental health concerns. We're reducing reliance on the state. So organizations can be, do this as a public service altruistically, but yet still benefit. So there is still the ROI or the return on the academy. I think you're right. I think that's that's the key here is organisations have got to think, not necessarily five years in the future, but 20 years in the future about mm -hmm. their part in, in, in the future here. Yeah. So on that note, um, I can't believe we've been chatting for one hour, one minute and 54 <laughs> seconds. It's, it's The time has flown past and uh, – how do people get hold of you? I'm sure people who listen to this would love to have a chat with you and hear your experiences. They can certainly find me on LinkedIn. My surname's pretty uh, unusual, so there's not a lot of Nicole Hardman's out there. So if they want to find me on LinkedIn, I'm really happy to chat and, and talk through this. This is absolutely one of my, my favourite subjects to talk about. So if anyone would like to do that, that would be great. And if they're in the Wiltshire Swindon area, are you still looking at uh, restarting the, uh, the IND Swindon network at some point? I think we absolutely will. We've taken a little break because one of our um, founders has um, had a lovely little girl, which is amazing. And I think everybody else got quite heavily bogged down with the pandemics. We were all working from home and working extra hours and covering all those extra things. But yes, it's definitely something that we'll, we'll kick back off and, and hopefully we'll get some in-person things going on, which will be amazing because yeah. I think everybody's got Teams fatigue or Zoom fatigue, whatever you want to call it now. Well, I'd love to volunteer to come along and... Uh... And be another one of your panelists or speakers one night if you ever want to invite me back. We'll hold you to that. <laughs> yes, excellent. So, Nicole, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners have uh, taken a lot of that in. Um, there's an awesome amount of content we've just talked about. And I, I'm, I'm passionate about gender equality. I'm passionate about equity and equality for everybody. So thank you for listening. Please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast, that's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends and colleagues, I'm, I'm sure you have plenty of them, so please share this, uh, the link, and uh, make everybody aware.
I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you think you can inspire people, if you haven't got imposter syndrome, you haven't got limiting beliefs, and you'd like to just put your name out there, let me know. I'd love you to be a guest. Uh, As always, I welcome any feedback and suggestions you have to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. Let me know how we can improve future shows. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.